Chapter Twenty Six of the Mysteries of Paris, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. The Mysteries of Paris, Volume One, by Eugene Sue. Chapter Twenty Six: The Ball. As the eleventh hour of the night sounded from the different clocks in Paris, the gates of an hotel in the Rue Plumet were thrown open by a Swiss in rich livery, and forthwith issued a magnificent dark blue Berlin carriage, drawn by two superb long-tailed grey horses. On the seat, which was covered by a rich hammer cloth trimmed with a mossy silk fringe, sat a portly-looking coachman, whose head was ornamented by a three-cornered hat, while his rotund figure looked still more imposing in his dress livery coat of blue cloth, trimmed up the seams with silver lace, and thickly braided with the same material, the whole finished by a splendid sable collar and cuffs. Behind the carriage stood a tall, powdered lackey, dressed in a livery of blue, turned up with yellow and silver. And by his side was a chasseur, whose fierce-looking moustaches, gaily embroidered dress and hat, half concealed by a waving plume of blue and yellow feathers, completed a most imposing coupe d'oeil. The bright light of the lamps revealed the costly satin lining of the interior of the vehicle we are describing in which was seated Rodolphe, having on his right hand the Baron de Grouin, and opposite to him the faithful Murphy. Out of deference for the sovereign represented by the ambassador to whose ball he was then proceeding, Rodolphe wore no other mark of distinction than the diamond order of. Round the neck of Sir Walter Murphy, and suspended by a broad orange ribbon, hung the enameled cross of the grand commander of the golden eagle of Geraldstein, and a similar insignia decorated the baron de Grouin, amidst an infinite number of the crosses and badges of honor belonging to all countries, depending by a gold chain placed in the two full buttonholes of the diplomatist's coat. I am delighted, said Rodolphe, with the very favorable accounts I have received from Madame Georges, respecting my poor little protégé at the farm of Bouqueval. David's care and attention have worked wonders. Apropos of La Goualaise, what do you think, Sir Walter Murphy? Any of your cité acquaintances would say at seeing you so strangely disguised, as at present they would consider you most valiant charcoal man to be. They would be somewhat astonished, I fancy." much in the same degree as the surprise your royal highness would excite among your new acquaintances in the rue de temple were you to proceed thither as now attired to pay a friendly visit to madame pipelet and to inquire after the health of cabrion's victim the poor melancholy alfred my lord has drawn so lively a sketch of alfred attired in his long skirted green coat and bell-crowned hat said the baron that I can well imagine him seated in magisterial dignity 
in his dark and smoky lodge. Let me hope that your Royal Highness's visit to the Rue de Temple has fully answered your expectations, and that you are in every way satisfied with the researches of my agent. Perfectly so, answered Rodolph. My success was even beyond my expectations. Then, after a moment's painful silence, and to drive away the train of thought conjured up by the recollection of the probable guilt of Madame d'Arville, he resumed in a tone more gay. I am almost ashamed to own to so much childishness, but I confess myself amused with the contrast between my treating Madame Pipelet in the morning to a glass of cordial, and then proceeding in the evening to a grand fete, with all the pomp and prestige of one of those privileged beings who, by the grace of God, reign over this lower world. Some men of small fortune would speak of my revenues as those of a millionaire, added Rodolphe, in a sort of parenthesis, alluding to the limited extent of his estates. And many millionaires, my lord, might not have the rare, the admirable good sense of the man of narrow means. Ah, my dear de Grand, you are really too good, much too good. You really overwhelm me, replied Rodolphe with an ironical smile, while the baron glanced at Murphy with the consciousness of a man who has just discovered he has been saying a foolish thing. Really, my dear de Grand, resumed Rodolphe, I know not how to acknowledge the weight of your compliment or how to repay such delicate flattery in its own way. "'My lord, let me entreat of you not to take the trouble,' exclaimed the baron, who had for the instant forgotten that Rodolphe, who detested every species of flattery, always revenged himself by the most unsparing raillery on those who, directly or indirectly, addressed it to him. "'Nay, baron, I cannot allow myself to remain in your debt. You have praised my understanding. I will, in return, admire your countenance.' for by my honour, as I sit beside you, you look like a youth of twenty. Antinius himself could not boast of finer features or a more captivating expression. My lord, my lord, I cry your mercy. Behold him, Murphy, and say whether Apollo could display more graceful limbs, more light and youthful proportions. I beseech you, my lord, to pardon me from the recollection of how long it is, since I have permitted myself to utter the slightest compliment to your royal highness. Observe, Murphy, this band of gold which restrains without concealing the locks of rich black hair flowing over this graceful neck and... My lord, my lord, for pity's sake spare me. I repent most sincerely of my involuntary fault, said the unfortunate baron, with an expression of comic despair on his countenance truly ludicrous. It must not be forgotten that the original of this glowing picture was at least fifty years of age, his hair gray, frizzled and powdered, a stiff white cravat round his throat, a pale, withered countenance, and golden spectacles upon the horny bridge of his sharp, projecting nose. Pardon, my lord, pardon, for the baron, exclaimed the squire laughing. I beseech you not to overwhelm him beneath the weight of your mythological illusions. I will be answerable to your royal highness that my unlucky friend here will never again venture to utter flattery. 
since so truth is translated in the new vocabulary of Geraldstein. What, old Murphy, too? Are you going to join in the rebellion against sincerity? My lord, I am so sorry for the position of my unfortunate vis-a-vis that I beg I may divide his punishment with him. Charcoal man in ordinary, your disinterested friendship does you honor. But seriously now, my dear de Gruan, how have you forgotten that I only allow such fellows as de Harnin and his train to flatter, for the simple reason that they know not how to speak the truth? that cuckoo note of false praise belongs to birds of such feather as themselves and the species they claim relationship with but for a person of your mind and good taste to descend to its usage oh fie baron fie it is all very well my lord said the baron sturdily but i must be allowed to say with all due apology for my boldness that there is no small portion of pride in your royal highness's aversion to receive even a just compliment well said baron come i like you better now you speak plain truths but tell me how you prove your assertion why just so my lord because you repudiated upon the same principle that might induce a beautiful woman well aware of her charms to say to one of her most enthusiastic admirers i know perfectly well how handsome i am and therefore your approval is perfectly uncalled for and unnecessary what is the use of reiterating what everybody knows is it usual to proclaim in the open streets that the sun shines when all may see and feel certain of his midday brightness now baron you are shifting your ground and becoming more dangerous as you become more adroit and by way of varying your punishment I will only say that the infernal Polidori himself could not have more ingeniously disguised the poisonous draught of flattery when seeking to persuade some poor victim to swallow it. My lord, I am now effectually silenced. Then, said Murphy, this time with an air of real seriousness, your royal highness has now no doubt as to its being really Polidori you encountered in the Rue de Temple i have ceased to have the least doubt on the subject since i learned through you that he had been in paris for some time past i had forgotten or rather purposely omitted to mention to your lordship said murphy in a sorrowing tone a name that never failed to awaken painful feelings and knowing as i do how justly odious the remembrance of this man was to your royal highness i studiously abstained from all reference to it the features of rodolph were again overshadowed with gloom and plunged into a deep reverie he continued to preserve unbroken the silence which prevailed until the carriage stopped in the courtyard of the embassy the windows of the hotel were blazing with a thousand lights which shone brightly through the thick darkness of the night while a crowd of lackeys in full-dress liveries lined the entrance hall extending even to the salons of reception where the grooms of the chamber waited to announce the different arrivals monsieur le comte the ambassador with his lady had purposely remained in the first reception room until the arrival of rodolph who now entered followed by murphy and monsieur de graun 
Rodolph was then in his thirty-sixth year, in the very prime and perfection of manly health and strength. His regular and handsome features, with the air of dignity pervading his whole appearance, would have rendered him, under any circumstances, a strikingly attractive man. But combined with the eclat of high birth and exalted rank, he was a person of first-rate importance in every circle in which he presented himself and whose notice was assiduously sought for. Dressed with the utmost simplicity, Rodolphe wore a white waistcoat and cravat, a blue coat, buttoned up closely, on the right breast of which sparkled a diamond star, displayed to admiration the light yet perfect proportions of his graceful figure, while his well-fitting pantaloons of black kerseymere defined the finely formed leg and handsome foot in its embroidered stocking. From the rareness of the Grand Duke's visits to the Haute Monde, his arrival produced a great sensation, and every eye was fixed upon him from the moment that, attended by Murphy and Baron de Grand, he entered the first salon at the embassy. An attaché, deputed to watch for his arrival, hastened immediately to appraise the ambassadress of the appearance of her illustrious guest. Her Excellency instantly hurried with her noble husband to welcome their visitor, exclaiming, Your Royal Highness is indeed kind thus to honor our poor entertainment. Nay, madame, replied Rodolphe, gracefully bowing on the hand extended to him, your ladyship is well aware of the sincere pleasure it affords to pay my compliments to yourself, and as for Monsieur le Comte, he and I are two old friends are always delighted to meet are we not my lord your royal highness in deigning to continue to me so flattering a place in your recollection makes it still more impossible for me ever to forget your many acts of condescending kindness i assure you monsieur le comte that in my memory the past never dies or at least the pleasant part of it for I make it a strict rule never to preserve any reminiscences of my friends, but such as are agreeable and gratifying. Your Royal Highness has found the secret of being happy in your thoughts, and rendering others so at the same time, rejoined the ambassador, smiling with gratified pride and pleasure at a conference so cordially carried on before a gathering crowd of admiring auditors. Thus, then, madame, replied Rodolphe, will your flattering reception of to-night live long in my memory, and I shall promise myself the happiness of recalling this evening's fete with its tasteful arrangements and crowd of attending beauties. Ah, madame la comtesse, who like you can affect such a union of taste and elegance as now sparkles around us? Your royal highness is too indulgent but i have a very important question to ask you why is it that lovely as are your fair guests their charms are never seen to such perfection as when assembled beneath your hospitable roof your royal highness is pleased to view our fair visitants through the same flattering medium with which you are graciously pleased to behold our poor endeavours for your and their amusement answered the ambassador with a deferential bow your pardon count replied rodolph 
if i differ with you in opinion according to my judgment the cause proceeds wholly from our amiable hostess madame l'ambassadrice may i request of your royal highness to solve this enigma inquired the countess smiling that is easily given madame and may be found in the perfect urbanity and exquisite grace with which you receive your lovely guests and whisper to each a few charming and encouraging words which if the least bit exceeding strict truth said rodolph smiling with good-tempered satire renders those who are even praised above their merits more radiant in beauty from your kind commendations while those whose charms admit of no exaggeration are no less radiant with the happiness of finding themselves so justly appreciated by you thus each countenance thanks to the gentle arts you practice is made to exhibit the most smiling delight the perfect content will set off even homely features and thus i account for why it is that woman all lovely as she is never looks so much so as when seen beneath your roof come monsieur l'ambassadeur own that i have made out a good case and that you entirely concur with me in opinion your royal highness has afforded me too many previous reasons to admire and adopt your opinions for me to hesitate in the present instance and for me my lord said the countess at the risk of being included among those fair ladies who get a little more praise or flattery which was it your highness styled it than they deserve i accept your very flattering explanation with as much qualified pleasure as if it were really founded on truth in order more effectually to convince you madame that nothing is more correct than all i have asserted let us make a few observations touching the fine effect of praise in animating and lighting up the countenance ah my lord you are laying a very mischievous snare for me said the countess smiling well then i will abandon that idea but upon one condition that you honour me by taking my arm i have been told wonderful things of a winter garden a work from fairyland may i put up my humble petition to be allowed to see this new wonder of a hundred and one nights oh my lord with the utmost pleasure but i see that your highness had received a most exaggerated account perhaps you will accompany me and judge for yourself only in this instance i would fain hope that your habitual indulgence may induce you to feel as little disappointment as possible at finding how imperfectly the reality equals your expectations the ambassadress then took the offered arm of rodolph and proceeded with him to the other salons while the count remained conversing with the baron de grand and murphy whom he had been acquainted with for some time and a more beautiful scene of enchantment never charmed the eye than that presented by the aspect of the winter garden to which rodolph had conducted his noble hostess let the reader imagine an enclosure of about forty feet in length and thirty in width leading out of a long and splendid gallery surmounted by a glazed and vaulted roof the building being securely covered in 
for about fifty feet. Round the parallelogram it described, the walls were concealed by an infinite number of mirrors, over which was placed a small and delicate trellis of fine green rushes, which, thanks to the strong light reflected on the highly polished glass, resembled an arbor, and were almost entirely hidden by a thick row of orange trees, as large as those of the Tuileries, mixed with camellias of equal size, while the golden fruit and verdant foliage of the one contrasted beautifully with the rich clusters of waxen flowers of all colors with which the other was loaded. The remainder of the garden was thus devised. Five or six enormous clumps of trees, and Indian or other tropical shrubs, planted in immense cases filled with peat earth, were surrounded by alleys paved with a mosaic shell-wort, and sufficiently wide for two or three persons to walk abreast. It is impossible to describe the wondrous effect produced by this rich display of tropical vegetation in the midst of a European winter and almost in the very center of a ballroom. Here might be seen gigantic bananas stretching their tall arms to the glass roof which covered them and blending the vivid green of their palms with the lanceolated leaves of the large magnolias, some of which already displayed their matchless and odoriferous flowers with their bell-shaped calluses, purple without, and silvery white within, from which started forth the little gold-threaded stamens. At a little distance were grouped the palm and date trees of the Levant, the red macaw, and fig trees from India, all blooming in full health and vigor, and displaying their foliage in all its luxuriance, gave to the tout ensemble a mass of rich, brilliant tropical verdure, which, glittering among the thousand lights, sparkled with the colors of the emerald. Along the trellising between the orange trees and amid the clumps were trained every variety of rare climbing plants, sometimes hanging their long wreaths of leaves and flowers in graceful festoons, then depending like blooming serpents from the tall boughs, now trailing at their roots, then ambitiously scaling the very walls, till they hung their united tresses round the transparent and vaulted roof, from which again they floated in mingled masses, waving in the pure light breeze loaded with so many odors. The winged pomegranate, the passion flower with its large purple flowers, striated with azure and crowned with its dark violet tuft, waved in long spiral wreaths over the heads of the admiring crowd. Then, as though fatigued with the sport, threw their colossal garlands of delicate flowers across the hard prickly leaves of the gigantic aloes. The bignonia of India, with its long cup-shaped flower of dark sulphur color and slight slender leaves, was placed beside the delicate flesh-colored petals of the stephanotis so justly appreciated for its exquisite perfume the two stems mutually clinging to each other for support 
and mingling their leaves and flowers in one confused mass, disposed them in elegant festoons of green fringe, spangled with gold and silver spots, around the immense velvet foliage of the Indian fig. Further on, started forth and then fell again in a sort of variegated and floral cascade, immense quantities of the stalks of the Asclepius, whose leaves, large, umbilated, and in clusters of from fifteen to twenty star-shaped flowers, grew so thickly, so evenly, that they might have been mistaken for bouquets of pink enamel, surrounded with leaves of fine green porcelain. The borders of the cases containing the orange sand camellias were filled with the choicest cape heaths, the tulips of fall, the narcissus of Constantinople, the hyacinth, irides, and cyclamina of Persia, forming a sort of natural carpet, presenting one harmonious blending of the loveliest tints. Chinese lanterns of transparent silk, some pale blue, others pink, partly concealed amidst the foliage, threw a soft and gentle light over this enchanting scene, nor could a more ingenious idea have been resorted to than in the happy amalgamation of these two colors, by which a charming and almost unearthly light was produced, combining the clear cerulean blue of a summer's night with the rose-colored coruscations emitted from sparkling rays of an aurora borealis. The entrance to this immense hothouse was from a long gallery, glittering with gold, with mirrors, crystal vases filled with the choicest perfumes, and brilliantly lighted, and also raised a few steps above the fairy palace we have been endeavoring to describe. The dazzling brightness of the approach served as a sort of penumbra, in which were indistinctly traced out the gigantic exotics discernible through a species of arch, partly concealed by two crimson velvet curtains, looped back with golden cords, so as to give a dim and misty view of the enchanted land that lay beyond. An imaginative mind might easily have persuaded himself he stood near a huge window opening on some beautiful Asiatic landscape during the tranquility of a summer's twilight. The sounds of the orchestra, weakened by distance and broken by the joyous hum proceeding from the gallery, died languidly away among the motionless foliage of the huge trees. Insensibly, each fresh visitant to this enchanting spot lowered his voice until his words fell in whispers, for the light genuine air, embalmed with a thousand rich odors, appeared to cast a sort of somnolency over the senses. Every breath seemed to speak of the clustering plants, whose balmy sweetness filled the atmosphere. Certainly two lovers, seated in some corner of this Eden, could conceive no greater happiness to be enjoyed on earth than thus dreamily to rest beneath the trees and flowers of this terrestrial paradise. At the end of this winter garden were placed immense divans beneath canopies of leaves and flowers, 
the subdued light of the hothouse forming a powerful contrast with the gallery. The distance seemed filled with a species of gold-colored shining fog, in the midst of which glittered and flickered, like a living embroidery, the dazzling and varied robes of the ladies, combined with the prismatic scintillations of the congregated mass of diamonds and precious stones. Rodolphe's first sensation upon arriving at this enchanting triumph of art over nature was that of most unfeigned surprise. This is indeed a wonderfully beautiful carrying out of a poetical idea, said he, almost involuntarily. Then, turning to the ambassadress, he exclaimed, Madame, till now I had not deemed such wonders practicable. We have not in the scene before us a mere union of unbounded expense with the most exquisite taste, but you give us poetry in action. Instead of writing as a master poet or painting as a first-rate artist, you create that which they would scarcely venture to dream of. Your Royal Highness is too indulgent. Nay, but candidly all must agree that the mind which could so faithfully depict this ravishing scene, with its charm of colors and contrasts beyond us, the loud notes of joy and mirthful reverie, here the soft silence and sweet gentle murmurs of distant voices, that lull the spirit into a fancied flight beyond this fitful existence. Surely, surely, without suspicion of flattery, it may be said of the planner and contriver of all this, such a one was born a poet and a painter combined. The praises of your royal highness are so much the more dangerous from the skill and cleverness with which they are uttered, and which makes us listen to them with delight, even in defiance of our sternest resolutions. But allow me to call your royal highness's attention to the very lovely person who is approaching us. I must have you admit that the Marquise d'Arville must shine preeminently beautiful, any and everywhere. Is she not graceful? Does not the gentle elegance of her whole appearance acquire a fresh charm from the contrast with the severe yet classic beauty by whom she is accompanied? The individuals thus alluded to were the Countess Sarah MacGregor and the Marquise d'Arville, who were at this moment descending the steps which led from the gallery to the winter garden. Neither was the panegyric bestowed by the ambassadress on Madame d'Arville at all exaggerated. No words can accurately describe the loveliness of her person. And the Marquise d'Arville was then in the first bloom of youthful charm. But her beauty, delicate and fragile as it was, appeared less to belong to the strict regularity of her features than to the irresistible expression of sweetness and universal kindness which imparted a charm to her countenance impossible to resist or to describe, and this peculiar charm served invariably to distinguish Madame d'Arville from all other fashionable beauties, for goodness of heart and kindliness of disposition are but rarely seen as the prevailing passions revealed in a face as fair, as young, high-born, and ardently worshipped by all, as was the Marquise d'Arville, who shone forth in all her lustre 
as the brightest star in the galaxy of fashion too wise virtuous and right-minded to listen to the host of flatterers by whom she was surrounded madame d'arville smiled as gratefully on all as though she could have given them credit for speaking the truth had not her own modest opinion of her just claim to such homage have forbidden her accepting a praise she never could have deserved wholly indifferent to flattery yet sensibly alive to kindness she perfectly distinguished between sympathy and insincerity her acute penetration correct judgment and lively wit unmixed by the slightest ill-nature made her wage an early though good-tempered war with those vain and egotistical beings who crowd and oppress society with the view of monopolizing general attention and blinded by their own self-love expect one universal deference and submission those kind of persons said madame d'arville one day laughingly appear to me as if their whole lives were passed in dancing le cavalier seul before an invisible mirror an unassuming and unpretending person however reserved and consequently unpopular he might be with others was sure to find a steady friend and partial observer in madame d'arville this trifling digression is absolutely essential to the right understanding of facts of which we shall speak hereafter the complexion of madame d'arville was of the purest white tinged with the most delicate carnation her long tresses of bright chestnut hair floated over her beautifully formed shoulders white and polished as marble it would be an impossible task to describe her large dark gray eyes fringed with their thick lashes and beaming with angelic sweetness her coral lips with their gentle smile gave to her eyes the indefinable charm that her affable and winning mode of expressing herself derived from their mild and angelic expression of approving goodness we will not further delay the reader by describing the perfection of her figure nor dwell upon the distinguished air which marked her whole appearance she wore a white crape dress trimmed with the natural flowers of the camellia intermixed with its own rich green leaves here and there a diamond sparkled among the waxy petals as if a dewdrop fresh from its native skies had fallen there a garland of the same flowers equally ornamented with precious stones was placed with infinite grace upon her fair and open brow the peculiar style of the countess sarah macgregor's beauty served to set off the fair feminine loveliness of her companion though turned thirty-five years of age sarah looked much younger nothing appears to preserve the body more effectually from all the attacks of sickness or decay than a cold-hearted egotistical disregard of every one but ourselves it encrusts the body with a cold icy covering which alike resists the inroads of bodily or mental wear and tear to this cause may be ascribed the wonderful preservation of countess sarah's appearance the lady whose name we last mentioned wore a dress of pale amber-watered silk 
beneath a crape tunic of the same colour a simple wreath of the dark leaves of the pyrus japonicus encircled her head and harmonized admirably with the bandeau of raven hair it confined this classically severe mode of headdress gave to the profile of this imperious woman the character and resemblance of an antique statue many persons mistaking their real cast of countenance imagined some peculiar vocation delineated in their traits thus one man who fancies he possesses a warlike air assumes the warrior another imagines his eye in a fine frenzy rolling marks him out as a poet instantly he turns down his shirt-collar adopts poetical language and writes himself poet so the self-imagined conspirator wastes days and hours in pondering over mighty deeds he feels called upon to do the politician upon the same terms bores the world and his friends with his perpetual outpourings upon political economy and the man whose saintly turn of countenance persuades its owner into the belief of a corresponding character within forthwith abjures the pomps and vanities of the world and aims at reforming his brethren by his pulpit eloquence now ambition being sarah's ruling passion and her noble and aristocratical features well assisting the delusion she smiled as the word diadem crossed her thoughts and lent a willing ear to the predictions of her highland nurse and firmly believed herself predestined to a sovereign destiny spite of the trifling embonpoint that gave to her figure which though fatter than madame de arville's was not less slender and nymph-like a voluptuous gracefulness sarah boasted of all the freshness of early youth and few could long sustain the fire of her black and piercing eyes her nose was aquiline her finely formed mouth and rich ruby lips were expressive of the highest determination haughtiness and pride the marquis and sarah had recognized rodolph in the winter garden at the moment they were descending into it from the gallery but the prince feigned not to observe their presence the prince is so absorbed with the ambassadress said madame de arville to sarah that he pays not the slightest attention to us you are quite mistaken my dear clemence rejoined the countess the prince saw us as quickly and as plainly as we saw him but i frightened him away you see he still bears malice with me i am more than ever at a loss to understand the singular obstinacy with which he persists in shunning you you formerly an old friend countess sarah and myself are sworn enemies replied he to me once in a joking manner i have made a vow never to speak to her and you may judge how sacred must be the vow that hinders me from conversing with so charming a lady and strange and unaccountable as was this reply i had no alternative but to submit to it and yet i can assure you that the cause of this deadly feud half in jest and half in earnest as it is originates in the most simple circumstances were it not that a third party is implicated in it i should have explained the whole to you long ago but what is the matter my dear child you seem as though your thoughts were far from the present scene nothing nothing i assure you replied the marquise faintly 
but the gallery is so very hot. It gave me a violent headache. Let us sit down here for a minute or two, and I hope and believe it will soon be better. You are right. See, here is a nice quiet corner where you will be in perfect safety from the researches of those who are lamenting your absence, added Sarah, pronouncing the last words with marked emphasis. The two ladies then seated themselves on a divan, almost concealed beneath the clustering shrubs and overhanging plants. I said those who would be lamenting your absence, my dear Clemence. Come, own that I deserve praise for so discreetly forming my speech. The Marquise blushed slightly, cast down her eyes, but spoke not. "'How unreasonable you are!' exclaimed Sarah, in a tone of friendly reproach. "'Can you not trust me, my dear child?' "'Yes, child, for am I not old enough to be your mother?' "'Not trust you?' uttered the Marquise sadly. "'Alas! Have I not, on the contrary, confessed that to you, "'which I should hardly have dared to own to myself?' "'Well, then, come, rouse yourself now.' let us have a little talk about him and so have you really sworn to drive him to despair for the love of heaven exclaimed madame d'arville think what you are saying i tell you i know him better than you do my poor child he is a man of cool and decided energy who sets but little value on his life he has had misfortunes enough to make him quite weary of it and it really seems as if you daily found greater pleasure in tormenting him and playing with his feelings. Is it possible you can really think so? Indeed, in spite of myself, I cannot refrain from entertaining that opinion. Oh, if you but knew how over-susceptible some minds are rendered by a continuance of sorrows and afflictions. Just now I saw two large tears fall from his eyes as he gazed on you. Are you quite sure of what you say? Indeed, I am quite certain, and that, too, in a ballroom, at the risk of becoming an object of general derision. If this uncontrollable misery were perceived, ah, let me tell you, a person must truly love to bear all this, and even to be careless about concealing his sufferings from the world. For the love of heaven, do not speak thus, replied Madame d'Arville in a voice trembling with emotion. Alas, you have touched me nearly. I know too well what it is to struggle with a hidden grief, yet wear an outward expression of calmness and resignation. Alas, alas, tis the deep pity and commiseration I feel for him has been my ruin, added she almost unconsciously. Nonsense! What an over-nice person you are! talk of a little innocent flirtation being ruinous, and that too with a man so scrupulously guarded as to abstain from ever appearing in your husband's presence for fear of compromising you. You must admit that Monsieur Charles Robert is a man of surprising honor, delicacy, and real feeling. I feel the more inclined to espouse his cause from the recollection that you have never met him elsewhere but at my house because i can answer for his principles and that his devoted attachment to you can only be equalled by the deep respect he bears you i have never doubted the many noble qualities you have so repeatedly assured me he possesses 
but you know well that it is this long succession of bitter afflictions which have so warmly interested me in his favour and well does he merit this interest and most fully do his excellent qualities absolve you of all blame in thus bestowing it surely so fine and noble a countenance bespeaks a mind equally superior to all mankind how completely are you reminded while gazing on his tall and finely proportioned figure of the true chevaliers of bygone days sans pure and sans reproche i once saw him dressed in his uniform as commandant of the national guard and handsome as he is i really think he looks surpassingly well and i could but say to myself that if nobility were the award of inward merit and external beauty monsieur charles robert instead of being so called would take precedence of nearly all our dukes and peers would he not be a fitting representative of any of the most distinguished families in france you know my dear countess how very little importance i attach to mere birth and you yourself have frequently reproached me with being strongly inclined to republicanism said madame d'arville smiling gently for my own part i always thought with you that m charles robert required not the aid of rank or titles to render him worthy of universal admiration then what extreme talent he possesses what a fine voice he has and what delightful morning concerts we three have been able to achieve owing to his all-powerful assistance ah my dear clemence do you remember the first time you ever sang with him what passionate expression did he not throw into the words of that beautiful duet so descriptive of his love and his fear of offending her who was the object of it by revealing it let me entreat of you said madame d'arville after a long silence to speak of something else indeed i dare not listen further what you but just now intimated of his depressed and unhappy appearance has caused me much pain nay my dear friend i meant not to grieve you but merely to point out the probability that a man rendered doubly sensitive by the succession of past misfortunes might feel his courage insufficient to encounter the fresh trial of your rejection of his suit and thus be induced to end his hopeless love and his life together oh no more no more almost shrieked madame de arville interrupting sarah this fearful idea has glanced across my mind already then after a second silence of some minutes the marquise resumed let us as i said before talk of somebody else of your mortal enemy for instance added she with assumed gaiety of manner come we will take the prince for a fresh theme of conversation i had not seen him previously to this evening for a very long time do you know that i think he looks handsomer than ever though all but king he has lost none of the winning sweetness and affability of his manner in spite of my republicanism i must confess i have seldom if ever known so irresistible a person sarah threw a side glance of deep and scrutinizing hatred upon her unconscious rival but quickly recovering herself she said gaily now my dear clemence you must confess to being a most capricious little lady you have regular alternating paroxysms of admiration and violent dislike for the prince why a few months ago i mean about his first arrival here 
you were so captivated by him that between ourselves i was half afraid you had lost your heart past all hope of recall thanks to you replied madame d'harville smiling my admiration was very short-lived for so well did you act up to your character of the prince's sworn foe and such fearful tales did you tell me of his profligacy and misconduct that you succeeded in inspiring me with an aversion as powerful as had been the infatuation which led you to fear for the safety of my heart which by the way i cannot think would ever have been placed in any danger from the attempts of your enemy to disturb its repose since shortly before you gave me those frightful particulars of the prince's character he had quite ceased to honour me with his visits although on the most intimate and friendly terms with my husband talking of your husband pray is he here to-night inquired sarah no replied madame d'harville in a tone of embarrassment he preferred remaining at home he seems to me to mix less and less in the world he never liked what is called fashionable gaiety the marquise's agitation visibly increased and sarah whose quick eye easily perceived it continued the last time i saw him he looked even paler than usual he has been very much out of health lately my dearest clemence will you permit me to speak to you without reserve oh yes pray do how comes it that the least allusion to your husband always throws you into such a state of extraordinary alarm and uneasiness what an idea is it possible you can mean it seriously asked poor madame d'harville trying to smile indeed i am quite in earnest rejoined her companion whenever you are speaking of him your countenance assumes even in spite of yourself but how shall i make myself understood and sarah with the tone and fixed gaze of one who wished to read the most secret thoughts of the person she addressed slowly and emphatically added a look of mingled aversion and fear the fixed pallid features of madame d'harville at first defied even sarah's practised eye but her keen gaze soon detected a slight convulsive working of the mouth with a tremulous movement of the under-lip of her victim. But feeling it unsafe to pursue the subject farther at this moment, so as to awaken the Marquise's mistrust of her friendly intentions, by way, therefore, of concealing her real suspicions, she continued, Yes, just that sort of dislike any woman would entertain for a peevish, jealous, ill-tempered, at this explanation of the countess's meaning as regarded madame d'harville's imagined dislike for her husband a heavy load seemed taken from her the working of her lips ceased and she replied let me assure you monsieur d'harville is neither peevish nor jealous then as if searching for some means of breaking conversation so painful to her feelings she suddenly exclaimed ah here comes that tiresome friend of my husband's the duc de lucenay i hope he has not seen us where can he have sprung from i thought he was a thousand miles off it was reported that he had gone somewhere in the east for a year or two and behold at the end of five months here he is back again his unexpected arrival must have sadly annoyed the duchess de lucenay 
though poor de Lucenay is a very inoffensive creature, said Sarah with an ill-natured smile. Nor will Madame de Lucenay be the only one to feel vexation at his thus changing his mind. Her friend, Monsieur de Saint-Remy, will duly and affectionately sympathize in all her regrets on the subject. Come, come, my dear Sarah, I cannot allow you to scandalize. Say that this return of Monsieur de Lucenay is a nuisance to everybody. The Duke is sufficiently disagreeable for you to generalize the regret his unexpected presence occasions. I do not slander. I merely repeat. It is also said that Monsieur de Saint-Remy, the model of our young elegance, whose splendid doings have filled all Paris, is all but ruined. Tis true he has by no means reduced either his establishment or his expenditure. However, there are several ways of accounting for that. In the first place, Madame de Lucenay is immensely rich. What a horrible idea! Still, I only repeat what others say. There, the Duke sees us. He is coming towards us. We must resign ourselves to our fate. Miserable, is it not? I know nothing so hard to bear as that man's company. He makes himself so very disagreeable, and then laughs so disgustingly loud at the silly things he says. Indeed, he is so boisterous that the bare idea of him makes one think of pretending to faint or any other pretext to avoid him. Talking of fainting, pray let me beg of you, if you have the least regard for your fan or essence bottle, to beware how you allow him to handle either, for he has the unfortunate habit of breaking whatever he touches, and all with the most facetious self-satisfied air imaginable. End of chapter 26 Recording by James O'Connor Randolph, Massachusetts, May 2012 End of the Mysteries of Paris, Volume 1 by Eugene Sue.